The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Good morning and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. This is Pat Leahy sitting in for Hugh Linehan again this week. And this morning we'll try to throw off the shackles of negativity and adopt a can-do attitude as we uh, consider the great events of the day and uh, in this jurisdiction and the neighbouring one. And we'll also in a little while be looking back over the major events of the past political term, which is now grinding, thank God, to a close. And we may even look forward to the highlights that we can expect from the political term when we resume in September. I'm joined this morning by our political correspondent, Harry McGee. Good morning, Harry. Hi, Pat. Good morning. And by Jennifer Bray, our political reporter. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. I want to look first at the story that's on all the front pages this morning. Two stories, in fact, that are on the front pages this morning, but we'll come to Boris presently. First of all, the Maria Bailey controversy. This has dogged Fine Gael uh, for and the Taoiseach uh, for several weeks now. Yesterday, Leo Varadkar announced that he was taking the chair of the Dáil Housing Committee away from Maria Bailey as a result of her celebrated or infamous claim, personal injuries claim against the Dean Hotel for falling off a swing. Harry, is this the end of the matter, do you think? I I don't know if it is the end of the matter, but in my view, the punishment that was meted out was uh, wholly proportionate. I just don't go along uh, with the public hue and cry that she uh, should lose her, uh, use the whip. Um, Why not? Of, well, I think losing the whip is is a very, um, comes after a, a very serious uh, transgression. And what happened here was that she found herself in the eye of the storm over two things. Number one, she exaggerated a claim. And I think she she deserved punishment for that. She exaggerated the nature of her injuries, did she? She, she did. I think she... she um, That's fairly serious, though. It, it is serious, but uh, I, I think that you have to look at this um, issue in its totality and you have to look at the kind of the the punishment that's already been meted out to her in the, the court of public uh, opinion. She compounded her difficulties with the Sean O'Rourke <clears throat> interview and she became a... Um, you know, she was held up to national ridicule in the wake of that, in a manner that... That was her own fault, though, of course, wasn't it? Of course it was, but you can't uh, discount the impact and personal effect that it had on her. And I think that looking at the um, situation in its totality, looking at the um, the ridicule uh, that she has uh, been subjected to, uh, looking at the kind of the... I'm using a technical term here, the shitstorm that she found herself in over the period of a month, uh, compounded by the fact that her father passed away. Uh, in the meantime, it would have been very easy uh, for Leo Varadkar uh, to decide to remove the whip for her, from her. It would have been a populist uh, move. It would have um, <clears throat> echoed the kind of the, the public clamour. But in my view, and I know it's not going to be a very popular view, I think given what's gone on, given what she's found herself in, uh, given the uh, reputational damage that she has already suffered, I think the action that was taken by the Taoiseach is proportionate. I think the Taoiseach I, deserves credit for withstanding the urgings of the mob. 
I, 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 I don't know whether he deserves. I think he just looked at it in in its whole, and he made a decision. I think it was a judgment call on his behalf. I think it was probably a marginal one. I don't think the tissue bottled it. I think he 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 might have been accused <coughs> of bottling it by kind of going along with the kind of remove the whip from her because he wouldn't have brooked any criticism for doing that. Jennifer V. Kelly is reporting on her front page this morning. There does seem to be some anger in Fine Gael that the expected removal of the whip, which was, we gather, what was intended at the end of last week, didn't uh, didn't take place. Do you think Fine Gael TDs might think that Mr. Varadkar bottled it? Yeah, there there is definitely a split, I think, within Fine Gael amongst people, some TDs and, and even ministers who believed that the strongest possible punishment should have been meted out given the severity of the damage that this did to the party. Um, because it did, according which, to Fine Gael, yeah. TDs and candidates, it did come up no, on the doors abso- during the local it, elections. It absolutely did. And I do take on board, um, I agree with Harry's point to a certain extent in relation to proportional punishment. However, if you look at the damage that it did to the party in the local elections, I think it's pretty much universally acknowledged within the party that it did. I spoke to grassroots members of the party a couple of weeks ago to talk to them about whether the report should be published or not. This is obviously the report compiled by David Kennedy, the senior counsel, into the issue. And a lot of them said that it should and they felt that it should have been published because um, there were seats in which were lost by a small number of votes. Now, they weren't saying it was specifically because of Maria Bailey, but they were saying this was what they were being asked on the doors. And they wonder, if this had not happened, could those more marginal seats potentially have been won? Um, That's obviously something that we won't know. It's not something that you're able to tell. But So I I do take on board that point, but it it, it did do the party significant damage. Um, Even reputationally, you know, they are trying to portray themselves as a party that are fighting uh, rising insurance costs for businesses. and, and um, Which is a big, big issue for a lot of businesses. Massive issue. It's, it's, and that would be yeah. those small businesses would be uh, a, a sort of a natural well of support for Fine Gael candidates. They would be, exactly. And and they did have to look at that. So just, you know, aside from the, the angst within the party, there was that going on without the party. So when you take the boat together, I think there was... There seemed to be, in the last number of days or leading up to, to yesterday, a swing almost, if you like, for want of a better word, um, towards giving out the strongest possible punishment. Now, obviously, we saw yesterday that that, that didn't happen. Um, there has been a lot of surprise about that. But look, I think there is also a view being taken that the Taoiseach had to be firm, but he also had to be fair. Uh, Maria Bailey probably won't get re-elected. I think that's fair to say. Um, or at least she faces, if she wants to run again, a, a very much an uphill battle. She, uh, unfortunately, her father passed away. She has, you know, withstood a lot of public criticism, some of it which I felt was really, really tasteless, um, particularly online. But every time I say that, people give out to me. But, you know, I, I do strongly believe that it went too far uh, a lot of the time. You're listening to The Irish Times. The other story dominating uh, this morning's front pages, which is, of course, the election yesterday of Boris Johnson as leader of the Tory party in the UK and his inevitable coronation as Prime Minister uh, today. Johnson promises to love bomb critics after election win is Dennis Staunton. There's the headline over Dennis Staunton's report for London from London the, this morning. Um, Harry, this is... is seems like a very significant sort of 
hinge in the history of uh, of Brexit. What's the sense that you're getting around Dublin about the hopes and fears of government and, and people in associated circles here about the Johnson Premiership? Well, as with um, much else with Boris Johnson, I mean, I, I think people are just, just do not know what approach he's going to take. I mean, he has promised uh, to uh, get uh, the UK to leave the European Union by the 31st of October come hell or high water. Uh, he said even if uh, there is a no deal uh, scenario, uh, he hasn't discounted the possibility of proroguing Parliament to do so, uh, which would be... It's extraordinary threat, But that would really. be a deeply unparliamentary and undemocratic act and would go against everything. Uh, the, uh, would, it would go against all the tenets of the parliamentary democracy uh, that has uh, been in existence in Britain uh, for nigh on 600 years now. But then with Boris, he tends to kind of talk people right to the end of the, uh, the, the, uh, the cliff and then kind of talks them back in again. And even during the leadership debate, he was kind of hinting uh, that he wouldn't uh, leave the EU uh, without a, a deal. And we've seen with the parliamentary uh, arithmetic with Theresa May during January, February, March of this year, uh, that there is no agreement in Parliament, this current Parliament, as to how uh, it should proceed. So if he remains within kind of the part, the the uh, the parliamentary uh, um, uh, system, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, for him uh, to exit uh, the EU. So he's a couple of options in 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 that respect. He can renegotiate to a certain extent uh, with the EU. He can have a back only up to a point. Yes, uh, only up to a point, and it'll be detail rather than substance. Uh, he can decide that, that Northern Ireland will be the only place that's subject to a backstop, but that's not going to go down very well with the DUP. And I don't think support your lies. And it's not going to go down uh, very well with, with certain elements of his own party either. Uh, he can delay, uh, which to me looks like a, a, a more realistic option at this stage, or he could call a snap election. And I, I actually wouldn't discount a snap election. Theresa May tried it uh, after she succeeded. David Didn't work Cameron. out too well, though. Didn't work out too well. But I think that Jeremy Corbyn was in a much stronger position at the time. And I think a lot of that kind of showroom shine that he had, the gloss has kind of gone from that. And I think that comparatively, I think Johnson would probably be in a stronger position to hold a snap election. But just looking at it uh, at this particular moment of time, I think he's going to swallow and he's going to um, uh, perhaps uh, go for a delay on October the 31st, alienate some so elements not, within his own party. So not out, do or die. I, I just can't see that happening, really, to be honest with you. I think it'll be very difficult for him to do so. And to do so, I think he might have to prorogue Parliament. And to do, so, to do that... Uh, will have very, very serious repercussions in my view. Jennifer, he can't, he has the political capital of a new leader behind him. But as people in Dublin point out all the time, the numbers haven't changed and the numbers are stacked against him in Parliament. Yeah, the numbers are stacked against him in Parliament. And I think that'll be the next part of the debate as we move on from kind of the shock that Boris Johnson is now the, the Prime Minister, although it's not that much of a shock because it was very clear the way this was going. And I think the problem is right now, Boris Johnson is still the great unknown to Ireland because, you know, we know where he's come from so far. Like there's a couple of problems in that he spent his time during the campaign for the leadership talking down the backstop, uh, talking about reopening the withdrawal agreement, uh, talking about being hell-bent on leaving at the end of October. Um, and as we know, the backstop 
as the most recent position of the Irish government is that it's going nowhere. Um, and Not just the Irish government, but and the of EU, of the course, EU as Ab- well. Absolutely, and there hasn't been any shift there so far. Um, and you know, the EU has been very clear that the withdrawal agreement will not be reopened. Um, so, really, what it comes down to is he willing to push uh, his country uh, into a no deal Brexit? And the sense that I'm getting from people is that they're almost hoping that other people save the day. So, for example, uh, anti no deal MPs, uh, and also um, that at the end of the day as well, that Tory self interest may save the day because. Would he want to be remembered as the British Prime Minister who pushed his country into a catastrophic economical position that impacted on all of, well, everyone in the country, but obviously Conservative voters and, you know, the impact that will have on the party for decades to come. So there is an element of self-interest that some people, I think, are hoping will save today. It seems to me that Boris's self-interest, now there is voluminous, column inches in uh written by my friends in the daily telegraph and uh, and, and 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 elsewhere tell me that I'm utterly wrong on this and that that may be the case but from where I'm sitting it is overwhelmingly in Boris Johnson's interests to get out on the 31st I don't not sure he can get out with a with a no deal I guess he probably doesn't know that himself Yes, but certainly the easiest way to get out is with uh, a version of the withdrawal agreement. Now, the most up from his point of view, the most optimistic range of possibilities is to get a minor tweak about the backstop, possibly. Uh, and, and I gather Bertie Herm was talking about this yesterday as well, but possibly a beefed up review process, which is already in the agreement, along with all sorts of commitments in the political declaration that uh, would would state the EU's on uh, that the EU was not would not keep Britain in or not keep the UK in a situation that didn't want to be in in indefinitely. But that so there's a range a, of possibilities there, a, but that requires that requires that seems to me is the only tweaking of the, uh, the, the the withdrawal agreement is possible. Now, could Boris, two questions about that. Could Boris roll over the opposition in the Tory, uh, the Tory party to the deal when Mrs May was there, to, again, let's not forget he voted for, him, vote, voted for it himself, to get, to, to get Brexit through, to get the withdrawal agreement through and exit on, on the 31st. And if he approached the EU and Dublin with some sort of a real, a realistic or reasonable request for a tweak that perhaps Dublin could live with, would the Irish government relent on that? Well, we're kind of entering into uh, dead Paris territory there, Pat, because, I mean, uh, the, the hardline Brexiteers will not accept a, a SOP, so the tweak would have to be very substantial for them to be uh, appeased. Um and yes, he did vote. But for lots of the hardline Brexiteers voted for the withdrawal agreement before any tweak. They, they not enough of them to get it passed, passed but lots yeah. of them did. But, I mean, he still needs to get the magic, including number. one B Johnson and one J Rees Mogg. Uh, absolutely, and Michael Gove as well, and all those who were associated with the um, with the with they're, the. They're there, and sorry to keep interrupting yeah. you, but their rationale being that this was the only way they could be sure of getting out and not leaving with the withdrawal agreement imperiled the whole Brexit 
process. Yeah. And that rationale is still there. Well, I was looking at the, the, we were all looking at the video yesterday as as uh, they were welcoming the two candidates on stage and they played a clip from uh, Maggie Thatcher where she said, you can, you, you, you can turn and you can turn, but this lady is not for turning. And they, they to me, there is a, I, I, I was listening to Mark Francois, for example, being interviewed on Sky yesterday. There is a hardcore of hardline Brexiteers who will not be happy uh, to leave unless there is uh, what essentially amounts to to a, a no deal. They don't want to back up. They don't want any but uh, put yourself, customs relationship put yourself with Ireland. in their mind then. If they decide, and there may be a long way from doing this at this point, but if they decide that the choice is not between a deal or no deal, but the choice is between a deal or potentially no Brexit, then what do they do? Well, how could it be potentially no Brexit? I mean, would Boris decide that there was going to be no Brexit? Parliament may decide for him. But um, isn't that the... That's his problem with the parliamentary numbers. Yes, but I don't think part. I don't think you're going to get a parliamentary majority that will decide for no Brexit. You'll get a parliamentary majority that will reject whatever deal is being put to them. But there won't be a specific majority in Parliament for for a no Brexit scenario. No, but there there will be a parliamentary majority against a no Brexit. They're, they're thus frustrating the Brexit. Sure, but they, then they'll the just have to continue working on all the kind of permutations they've been working on. It's not kind of binary. It's not Brexit or no Brexit. Parliament is never going to decide that. I mean, we're in a kind of a, 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 a situation where, 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 it's, where I see it's impossible. I think the only thing that could actually sort it out is a general election. And I think the possibility of a general election has gone up. Uh, not that much. I think they, they, they will try a deal first. Uh, I think delay is the second option, but I wouldn't discount the possibility of a general election because otherwise you're just left with the same mess that we've been looking at for the past year. Yeah, and also the you know the default position in the absence of any other agreement is still a no deal, so that's still where we're left. Um, and just to go back to what I, I was saying I never, about yeah. the tweak, that sounds to me like the greatest, potentially the greatest political fudge of all time. Very Some, possibly. Something whereby the Irish government could say, here is our unshakable insurance mechanism on the border it's fine. And something where the British government could turn around and say there is technically a time limit on this. And it's when you have those two narratives existing side by side in two sets of media, you know, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile mm. who wins the day in that in that circumstance. And if there is a tweak, and I do agree with you, Harry, it would have to be obviously substantial. It couldn't just be a cursory tweak. Then Honestly, that is probably the greatest yeah, political fudge of all would time. Would the Irish government Pat, be, be uh, amenable to, to offer a a grand concession, some something that would be seen as, as a substantial. I, don't I remember so. an uncle of mine used to say when he was driving, so I'm going to die defending my right of way. And, you know, we could actually die defending a right of way because the thing is that if there's a no deal scenario, we're going to be left in the uh, merd, well, as it were. And this, the difficulty with the backstop that it may end up bringing about the thing that it has been designed But I think before, in previous years or even in previous months, there was this focus on the backstop and, you know, are we going to die? Is this the hill we're going to die on? But now that Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister, I do think that maybe there might be a heightened awareness of its absolute necessity and the need for it when you're dealing with a politician who, how do I put this in a, you know, who hasn't exactly always been a man of his word. He's a complete liar. Yes. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Pat. Well, <laughs> but I'm, yeah. I'm, well, I'm glad we cleared all that up. Uh, 
because I want to move on to a more leisurely consideration of the events of the last political term or the political term just ending now. Cabinet meets in Donegal tomorrow for its final meeting before the August break, barring any Brexit emergencies. But certainly, I think a lot of the doll rose last week. A lot of politicians are going on their holidays, if not already uh, already on them. So I thought we might look back and I've asked our esteemed panel to present to me the event in the last political term that they view as having the most significance. Harry, you were looking at... Well, I kind of focused on on the Parliament and, I mean, it was an undistinguished six months for Parliament in terms of legislation, in terms of uh, big ticket issues. And I think there was a, a reason for that because the Brexit, the omnibus, um, omnibus Brexit bill kind of dominated everything uh, in the early part of the session, certainly until... And the subject itself so, dominated Patrick, an awful lot, particularly of the early period, less so of the last it, well, number then, of weeks. Well, then we started getting into elections and yeah. started getting into different things as well. But I think the, the, the one uh, exception to that uh, was uh, climate change. I think there was a, a new... Um, Reality in terms of uh, climate change, people recognising uh, the urgency uh, and immediacy uh, of the issue. Uh, one of the things that has worked well in this kind of higgy uh, consensus like Danish parliament uh, has been that committees have come together and have come up with, with very uh, good uh, consensus-led uh, solutions uh, to big uh, societal uh, problems. We've seen it in the past uh, with the with the uh, uh, with the committee on abortion last year, and we saw it this year with the climate change committee. Now there were some disagreements towards the end in terms of approach, but if you there's look at still the, very significant disagreements there, between there are, parties on fundamental issues like a carbon tax. Right? Uh, well, there is, but but if you looked at there, there were many things in which agreement w- was wrought, and it did provide a a um, a template. Uh, even though he had most of it worked out already uh, for Richard Bruton in terms of the climate action plan that he came up with. Now, that had many faults. I think uh, we'll go to the uh, the carbon tax. Uh, carbon tax uh, was agreed by a majority of the committee, but the smaller parties, well, Sinn Féin is not a smaller party, but Sinn Féin and the smaller leftist parties uh, opposed it on reasons that I consider to be fairly spurious. They cited a, a Canadian carbon tax uh, that wasn't successful, uh, but John Fitzgerald uh, subsequently pointed out uh, to a, an Oireachtas uh, committee what was that if it hadn't been in place, uh, you would have seen emissions growing uh, far more in Canada at the time. They were imposed at a time of, of growth in, in Canada than, than, than they were. So they opposed Sorry, was that. the carbon tax not opposed? Does everybody not know that the carbon tax is opposed by parties, not because they have fundamental disagreements with the principle of it, but because they know it'll be unpopular? Yeah, they're populist. It's a populist measure. And they've tried to kind of parley the way around it. But it is the same way that they opposed, uh, well, I'm, they might have opposed the water tax for more fundamental reasons, but there was a populist element uh, in that too. And how, second, how important is it? Sorry, I interrupted you. But but how, how important is the carbon tax well, as a kind of a central lever of climate change policy? I, I think it's a component. I don't is it think it's worth dying on a hill for, for the government. Well, I don't know if it's worth dying on a hill, but it's it's a very important component, and for two uh, for for two things because it gives people a sense of 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 if they're using carbon that they're putting a price on carbon. So if they're conscious that the more carbon they use, the more they're going to pay, and it also provides people an incentive to cut down on carbon use. So the more you pay uh, for carbon, and the more you the less you 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 use carbon, the less you're going to pay. 
in the same way that they, the same principle uh, that they used in relation to to water charges. And it has been shown. I mean, uh, John Fitzgerald told the same committee, said that there is not an economist in the world uh, that disagrees uh, with the uh, notion that carbon tax is a good thing uh, in terms of making people aware uh, uh, of a price point uh, for carbon and also as a tool for, for reducing uh, carbon emissions. And it has been shown to actually reduce carbon emissions. The second big fault line uh, was between the big parties and the Green parties, uh, Sinn Féin and the other parties, in relation to this kind of divide between spend on roads versus public uh, transport. And the Greens wanted a two-to-one proportion in favour of public transport over roads. Uh, the big parties, just to be simple about it, wanted the proportion or the ratio to go uh, the other way. And they prevailed at the committee and they've also more or less prevailed in the uh, action plan uh, that was uh, produced by Richard Bruton. And then just in relation to the action plan itself, I think it was a very substantial document. I think there's lots of stuff that, in it that's really good uh, if they're acted upon. I mean, implementation is always uh, the, the the key thing here. So it's I think, the missing bit, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we talked about Leo documents. bottling it earlier on. I think there was a bit of bottling uh, in relation to agriculture. I think that they are hoping against hope that they will be able to find technological solutions that will be able to uh, overcome uh, the... Uh, technological thing. solutions to make the cows fart less? Yes. Uh, Sounds somewhat finding, far-fetched. Well, it's, they're, 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 they're experimenting with fertiliser, uh, with food. They're, they're, um, when they're spreading slurry now... We need buy-in from the cows on this. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, uh, some of it is effective, but it's only effective up to a point. For example, when they're spreading slurry, they, they, they dig in the slurry a bit now. So what happens when you, when you traditionally uh, spread slurry is if it rains the slurry all washes off the surface of the land and into rivers and into watercourses and uh, contributes, number one, to pollution, but also, number two, the, the, the gases that rise uh, contribute to, to climate change. So they find that there's new ways of spreading slurry that kind of digs it into the ground a bit or just uh, gives it some purchase in the ground so it's not affected by, by rain. But they're kind of marginal. So they do really have to approach the kill, kill the cows scenario at some stage in the future. I think there's a, an acceptance within agriculture that the beef uh, sector would probably have to be reduced uh, somewhat. Uh, well, if you talk to beef farmers, they're being reduced by market forces at the moment. Yeah, they? As they are, yeah. Whereas dairy seems to be very strong at the moment by comparison. But I, I just think that they could have been a little bit stronger in relation but to... Dairy cows fart as well, though, don't they? All cows fart. Mm. All ruminant ass sheep do as well. I think it's belching. I'm learning a lot this morning. It's actually I want the belching, listeners to know. It's actually belching more than farting, I think. Uh, actually, I knew that, but I just like saying fart <laughs> online. Um, yeah, there's kind of a little bit of a Shakespearean thing to it this morning. The other, the other thing is, uh, in relation to that area, is forestry. I mean, d- uh, one of the ways of uh, uh, cutting down on emissions is by uh, planting more trees. Uh, there was a report recently suggesting that the planting of trees is a lot more effective in terms of carbon control than previously imagined, right? Yeah, of course it is. But the difficulty is that it just can't happen on marginal land. It has to happen on good land as well. And since 2000, there's been a decrease in the amount of new forestry that's been planted. Farmers are very reluctant to do so. And there is no incentive at the moment for farmers to start a, a forestation. Uh, Harriet, and they need, they need to do 8,000 hectares a year. You're, you're county men in the, the bogs of South Galway, maybe... Uh, prepared to plant <laughs> trees on their land but uh, my compatriots down in the Golden Vale may be uh, a, lot, a lot more That's reluctant the problem. That's the problem to it. Uh, Jennifer, your highlight of the last, uh, the last political term was uh, I think 
the elections, right? Yeah, the local and European elections. Um, so in the lead up to the elections, not all of, but a lot of the main debates were around the battle between uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. In the end, afterwards, it transpired that the bigger story was actually elsewhere on, on, on the smaller parties. Uh, if we look at the numbers, uh, Fianna Fáil... Uh, 279 seats up 12, uh, Fine Gael uh, added 20, uh, so up at 255. So that's not a lot between them, considering all of the... Nah, they're, they're neck and neck, They're neck they? and neck. It's, it's you know, it, it wasn't and the kind of... point of great political significance, given absolutely. the fact that there's an election in the mid-distance sometime after Brexit yeah. is resolved. So, of course, you know, political nerds like us and probably our listeners would be watching that very keenly and, and the battle of the civil war politics. But like I said, the big story, well for me anyway, was was elsewhere. I'm talking specifically about Sinn Féin and the Green Party obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Sinn Féin had a disastrous uh, local election. I don't think there's any other way to paint it and I think that a lot of the commentary, if you compare it to you know previous Labour elections where they suffered terribly and that was labelled as a catastrophe, this was in line with that. This was similar if not in some ways worse. So was they it l- a bit unforeseen as well, the extent of it? Yes, absolutely. Well, a lot, a lot of people in the party said they didn't see it coming, mm. which... What does that say? But I think that's kind... I, I think that's unusual because now, to be fair now, I went out on one canvas with, with uh, Sinn Féin uh, councillors and TDs, but I picked up on the apathy at the door and it wasn't so much the people were being, um, you know, aggressive or anything. They were just not engaging. They were kind of just, yes, OK, by closing the door. Whereas when I was out with Fianna Fáilers and Fine Gaelers and Greens and Sock Downs, they, they did engage with them. So obviously, like, in hindsight, that's a wonderful thing. But I wonder how much of that is because the Sinn Féin core message, which was so successful in 2011, the general election in 2014, the last uh, local and European elections to a lesser extent in, in 2016 general election was based on opposition to austerity, opposition to cuts and indeed anger at amongst many people at the impact of restrictions on uh, on public services and the other outworkings of the era of austerity. But that era has passed now and while there are people still affected by it, public services have been in expansionary mode the last number of years, the Sinn Féin message hasn't really moved on. It hasn't and I think the one word I picked up, I picked up on all the words you said obviously, but the one words I focus is anger. That anger, I think it's still there in, in certain areas like housing and health uh, particularly, but the anger about the economy I think has dissipated somewhat. And Sinn Féin's message hasn't particularly evolved in any great way over the course of that time. And we've seen parties like Fine Gael be punished for um, slogans like keep the recovery going, etc. When, you know, perhaps people felt that that wasn't the way. But by and large, I think most people would agree that the economy is in right now uh, a pretty good place, although there are, are, are dark clouds on the horizon. So, you know, the problem for Sinn Féin is they lost 78 seats. That's a lot. And they lost them in areas whereby they it would be worrisome for their TDs going forward. Um, I, like I'll give an example. Um, so they lost eight of their ten seats on Cork County Council. They lost four uh, on Cork City Council. You know that would be worrying for people like Jonathan O'Brien and Donegal, O'Leary, etc. So, you know, 
going into the general election, that'll be a concern. There's warning signs all over the country, really. All over the country. On the basis of those results. Yeah, like they had two good spots, I think, in in Waterford Waterford. and Donegal. Mm. And, you know, that'll be good for uh, David Cullinan and uh, Senator Porrick McLaughlin. Yeah, who, uh, who, who lost a seat. So a few small good spots, but all in all worrisome for what's going forward. So, Obviously, the next big story, although it was the big story of the weekend with the Green Party, um, they gained uh, 37 seats and it wasn't expected. It was, I remember talking to Eamon Ryan and him saying, I'm getting really good feedback around the country. I, I think we're going to do better than other people think. But when I caught up with him afterwards, he said, I didn't think it would be that good. And the problem for them now, because there's always a problem with things like this, is do they go into coalition? So we've seen uh, some of their candidates say that they shouldn't. Um, and the issue, I think, Harry, you were at their um, their conference recently whereby they passed a motion, uh, I think it was to basically say that they would. Yeah, non-binding. Yeah. And it was kind of carried by a very large majority. There's a minority of the party, Saoirse McHugh, um, Saoirse McHugh Laura yeah. Bogue down in Cork, who would be very anti any coalition agreement with the bigger parties. But, but that's the where the party is aiming to go, if it can, isn't it? Absolutely. They're, they're, they, they want to go into government. Uh, and they, they. What do you think the chances of that are? I think chances are high. Um, depends on the arithmetic. I mean, uh, if 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 Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil manage to put some clear blue water between themselves and their biggest rival, um, I think both parties could gain gain seats after the next election. Funnily enough, but neither of them is going to be within an asset drawer. Of a, no, but of I, a majority, I think, so they will need a dance yeah, partner. Well, I think Sinn Fein could lose a lot of seats, and um, they will be picked up by. Parties like the Greens, like uh, the Labour Party, like the Social Democrats. So um, you you will find the the I, I I think coalition making will be a little bit less problematic this time than it was in 2016. I think it's going to still be a. You major think the headache. numbers will be clearer? The numbers will be clearer. I don't think I don't think the the government it'll be a minority government, but it won't be a minority government that's 25 seats short of a majority. I think the actual gap will be smaller. I think there will still be a dependency to a certain extent on the other larger party for a kind of a Tala type strategy if not a kind of a formal uh, confidence and supply agreement. Well conveniently this allows me to segue into uh, the next uh, section of this morning's (laughs) symposium which is you know just looking forward to the next political term obviously it's going to be dominated by Brexit but there's a budget to be done as well and there is the reality that this government is if not a zombie government is as soon as Brexit is resolved whatever that resolution may be is really on its last legs well I, I think yeah I mean every year since 2016 we've said it's definitely going to be an election next year but I think finally our prediction well, sooner or later we'll be right about that yes Harry, I think yeah. finally our prediction might come through I, I actually don't think there's going to be a, an autumn election I think the election is going to take place either early in the new year or perhaps kind of early summerish of next year and my inclination is early sum, summerish for no other reason than I'm kind of optimistic about it I think that the parties will will limp along I think uh, as you said it'll be a zombie government but I think both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil will be happy not to have an election until next summer I think Fine Gael think that they are believe that they need to do a little bit of regrouping. Uh, they need to relook at candidate strategy. They, they've done they've done some of that already. Uh, they dropped Ray Butler in Meath a couple of weeks ago. They're adding a candidate here and there. Uh, those probably, local elections are a bit of a warning light yeah, for think, Fine Gael, uh, were they? Yeah, I think they... Albeit they, that they didn't objectively do no, but, badly. But they, they did not do as well as they had 
hoped no. and they are still behind. And they the revised fall. downwards a couple of times their expectations uh, yeah. as, as we got mm. closer to the local elections. I think they saw what was coming down the horizon between health housing and obviously the Maria Bailey controversy didn't help. Yeah, it's, it's kind of we're in the, in the second half now, towards the end of the second half and they want to kick on and they're still kind of lagging a couple of points behind. And I think Fianna Fáil, I think a later election will see Fianna Fáil for no other reason than Micheál Martin is an innately cautious person. And he will be happy not to have to face an election. Until True, the but he has to make moment. his move at some stage. He will, he? and he is I, under internal pressure. He, he is, but he is he is innately cautious by nature, and I think that he will not be uh, lepping early unless there is a uh, a preponderance, an overwhelming preponderance of evidence suggesting to him that you need to go for an election now. So he takes a lot of convincing. So that's my instinct: is that the election will be next year and slightly later. Uh, maybe late spring, early summer. It would be in Fine Gael's interest, though, I think, to have an election sooner. Um, I'm picking up on a, just a few TDs saying that, you know, looking at November, the problem with November, obviously, is once you've passed the budget, you need to get through all of the legislation to bring in... Finance uh, bills, social yeah, welfare bills. It's also a small matter of Brexit may be unresolved um, by the time we get to November. It, it very well may be. But it may not be. There may be yeah. extension. They may be out. You know, thirty first of October is a serious deadline. It wouldn't be the first deadline to be missed, but it is a serious exactly. deadline. Exactly, and there are there are things coming down the road that I I think would make a lot of Finnegalers anxious. The uh, contract for the a national broadband plan still hasn't been signed. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the expectations are that it will, but it hasn't been yet, and the, the costs therein. And um, I think there'll be more trouble in on the horizon in relation to the National Children's Hospital and and the cost of that. And there's always banana skins. Things pop up that nobody expects. Take everybody by surprise. And next of all, you have Barry Cowan on the plinth saying, if it wasn't for Brexit, if it wasn't for this, that and the other government would be gone. So, you know, you have to remember... Maria Bailey being a case in point. Things just come up and I I just, you know, I I just refuse to believe that we're going to have a second half political uh, semester with no great unknowns that are going to catch us all by surprise. I mean, the other problem with Fine Gael is that they think that they might be able to kind of... um, they might be able to close the gap between now and next summer. But maybe all they're doing if they hold an election early is that they're cutting their losses, you know, because there's a certain momentum. Parties have come out from the local elections with a certain momentum. And because of the proximity of the next general election, it'll be very hard for parties who have work to do uh, to, to make corrections on that. I think it's going to be nigh impossible for Sinn Féin but to also, turn the ship at this stage. I just can't see how they can do it. The last two occasions Fine Gael were in government and calling an election, they got the timing wrong. In yep. 97 and in... Uh, 2016. And in 2016. In which there was an apparent showdown between Ed Kenny and Joan Burton. And, in, and, and, and right. Kenny was Over being an urged, election the previous year. urged yep. to have, didn't have the November election. A lot of people pointed fingers and said he should have had a November election. So I don't know if we'll find... We don't know if that would have been a better outcome. We could have Leo Varadkar coming out of the Brexit debate as the great hero and Simon Coveney as the great hero. You just don't know... Uh, you know, everybody looks at it as in all of the imminent perils of Brexit. But if there is a deal, they could be, you know, if they, ha- if they hold the line and hold their nerve, that could be the time to go. And when they are in good stead with the country, all of those banana skins are down the road. The broadband plan, the children's hospital, um, the flu crisis in December, the housing crisis, just put it all to bed, go in on a hero's tide. But that's just obviously me gazing into my very, very... Uh, unreliable crystal ball. Ah, well, it may be. It may have a greater clarity than the <laughs> cloudy globes in front of myself and I Harry. Doubt it. Uh, thank you very much to my guests, Jeffrey Bray and Harry McGee, uh, this morning. Speaking of Boris, we will be addressing uh, the fact and the matter of Boris on a special podcast tomorrow. 
And on Friday from the McGill Summer School in Glenties, County Donegal, we will be podcasting a public interview with Taoiseach Leo Varadkar by yours truly. So tune in for that. Thank you very much.